began to read down through these uh, great passages here as we're coming through the section that really talks about, you know, dealing with people. And I told you that, you know, what we're looking at here is really for those of you who have a desire to, to minister for the Lord, to let God take you and, and develop you into what He wants you to be and use you in this church, these verses are really the reality of ministry. You know, the reality of serving God and really understanding uh, what God really looks at in your life and my life so many times. And, you know, uh, we talked about it last week, how we all like to pretend. You know, we like to pretend that we're doing better with God than we really are. Most of our lives, I think, by human nature as much, is we just don't want to deal with reality. And, um, you know, as you know now from last Thursday night, if you were here for our our New Year's Eve, when we told you that well, we had to make some directional changes, you now understand that we don't have the same church this morning as we had last Sunday morning. In the course of a week, we have changed the whole direction, and we, we now have a better understanding. Every sermon that you hear, every, every special class like the church history, every Bible study on Thursday night will now have a complete, or it should have, a complete and total different effect on you because of what God did for us last Thursday night. And God came down and certainly put His crown of approval on it by giving us this precious soul saved, and we're so thankful for all that God did. But we're talking about defining ourselves through ministry. I told you that nothing will define you and me, male or female. Nothing will define who you are as a Christian better or more clearly than when you begin to get into ministry. And because ministry requires... Uh, you to have a purpose. Ministry requires to you to have a certain perspective. And ministry requires that you have a certain passion. And those three things you're going to hear a lot in the next uh, couple of years as we begin to focus on that because that really, that's where really the success of this church lies in keeping God's people, uh, keeping the purpose before them. And to me, the purpose is clearly uh, the fact that, uh, you know, that the job of this church, the job of this church is not in its first and foremost, the job of this church is not to get people saved. The job of this church is not necessarily to teach you the Bible or to help you through your problems. The job of this church, the purpose of this church, it should be the purpose of any church, but the purpose of this church is one thing, and that is to preach God's truth. If you get the truth, people will get saved. If you get the truth, you'll get your life changed. If you get the truth, it'll fix every problem you have if you do what you need to do with it. That's purpose to me. And then I look at perspective. Perspective is once you understand that you have the truth and you realize that the job of the church is to put out truth, your perspective becomes more understanding of what God is doing and you realize really what a church is. And a church is a place that should always give people a chance to get saved if they're lost by preaching the truth. And a church is always a, 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 a situation where people who are saved ought to have the opportunity to serve God. That's really uh, what our perspective should be. We're not a social club. We're not, we do a lot of fun things, and it's, it's easy to, to lose your perspective of why we're doing what we're doing when you don't come back and understand the purpose of why we're doing it. The job of this church is to put out truth, and some people will gravitate to that truth, 
Some people will not. You hear pastors, and I hear them all the time, you know, that pastors get up and they browbeat their people by saying, well, you'll never find another church like this, and you need to, you know what, there's no reason for you to leave our church, and you need to stay here, and you'll never, you'll get everything you need in this church, and, and that simply is pretty foolish uh, that shows me that somebody doesn't either understand their purpose or their perspective, because I'll tell you very clearly, and you'll never hear me say that here. You may get all that you all that you need here from the Bible, but the bottom line is, and I've said this from day one, this church is not for everybody. I've never claimed that it would be. I've never wanted it to be. I've never orchestrated my teaching and my preaching to please anybody. And that's really what happens in a church when you don't understand your purpose. When you don't understand that the purpose of this, is that gift for me under there? Is that, I see it. Is, that, is, that, is it for me? Oh, God bless you. That'll look big enough to be a car. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Bottom line is this. When you lose sight of your purpose, then you, you lose sight of preaching truth. And what you do then is because you want to please people sometime, or maybe you want somebody to come into church so badly, or you want them to do right so badly, that you'll kind of take your foot off the gas, so to speak, on the preaching. And I've told you many, many times that, uh, you know, you'll never find a time where Jesus ever altered his message so somebody would get saved. You know what he did? He preached the truth, let the chips fall where they may, and you either got saved or you didn't. And that's the only way a church can really operate, is understanding that's its purpose. When you understand your purpose, then our perspective becomes clear. And our perspective is, and I talked about it the other Thursday night, didn't I? You take a church of 500 people, in reality, you probably only have maybe 150 people in that church. You may have 500 bodies. I remember old Mel Sabaka told me one time, and we were talking about some kid that had built a church of six or 7,000 people, you know, and, and he built it based on, on just the good times and all of the things, and, and, and you know, and he, I never forget. And the wisdom of the old man just staggered me sometimes. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, just because you've got a crowd does not mean you have a church. Because a church is never associated with a crowd. But we think it is, see. The reality is if you have a purpose, and you have your perspective, you're going to understand in ministry that ministry is not for everybody. It should be, but it's not going to be. And then, of course, the third one is passion. Passion is simply that once you have a purpose, and once you get your perspective, then you take all of your energy and you put it into doing what God wants you to do. It's just that simple. You give me somebody, a young man or a young lady, who understands those three things, and I'm going to teach you those three things. You're going to eat, sleep, and drink them as it builds into your life that it becomes automatic. And uh, when you leave here today and you're going to go home, you really don't have to think about which way you're going. Now, you may today because the weather might be bad, but on normal days, you just get in your car and it's like it's on automatic pilot. You know where you're going. You don't even think about, should I turn left here, turn right here? You know how to get home. Because you've been home so many times, it's automatic to you. If I'd ask you your telephone number, you could rattle off just like that. If I'd ask you your address, you could give it to me just like that. Why? Because you live there. If I would ask you to describe to me, close your eyes and describe the color of your kitchen and what you got here and what you got there, or your bathroom, or your living room, you could lay it off just like that. You know why? Because you live there. 
And when you and I as a Christian, young man and young lady, through the process of spiritual growth, live within a purpose, live within a perspective, live within a passion, you won't need anybody to tell you how to get there. You'll know exactly what you need to do. We've been talking about the Christian qualities that come from a relationship with God, really God's qualities that are in our lives as Christians. You know, and I, I told you, I, uh, you know, I've said this many, many times. There's a great verse in the Bible. I think it's one of my favorite verses about my own personal relationship with God in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. And it simply says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. You don't have to get your 45-pound King James Bible and get your, get your jacket that says Jesus man on the back or whatever the case may be uh, to let people know. If you love God, everybody around you knows it because the Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known to him. You know why? Because it's the character qualities that come out of our lives because of our relationship with God. Last Thursday night, whether you, and I'm sure you understand it, but whether you understand it or not, we, we grew into full flourishing as a church. Up to this point, I've looked at it as the beginning process to get us to a point. And now we're going to go to work on building Christian leadership in those three phases that we talked about. We're going to take those of you who want to that have, are just basically uh, what we would call the, the little children in Christianity. You just got saved a while back or you don't know a lot about the Bible and we're going to get you to the next level. We're going to take the ones that have been around for a while and uh, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you need to understand these concepts better and uh, we're going to get you to the next level. Now we're going to take that third level. And that third level is what I'm really focusing on. Everybody's going to get what they need. And audibly my goal, ladies and gentlemen, is to get all of you to the third level. Well, right now we've got to take you where you're at and we've got to help you where you're at and we've got to give you what you need to help you get there. But the third level that I'm looking for is building the leadership base of getting those who uh, are in the father stage, so to speak, to that elder stage where you really, 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 really put together in your life the purpose, the perspective, and the passion. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a great time. Uh, I want to read for you today, go back to where we read last week in Romans chapter 12, and I want to pick it up in verses 9 and come down through 21. I don't know how far again we'll get here today, but we want to begin to come down through these. And I'm going to read what I talked about last week so we have a context. But verse 9, it says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affected one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. So in, doing so, uh, so, in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Father, 
We come to you today and we thank you for those who have braved the elements to come through this snow to be here today. And uh, Lord, we look forward to what you have for us. And I know, Lord, that uh, you have some things for them. I know that in many, many hearts last week, uh, last Thursday night, you touched so many people and you brought this church uh, out of one phase uh, into the other. And Lord, let us begin now to look at everything that we say and everything that we do from a totally different standpoint. Let us put uh, and listen and put the things in our lives that we need. And help me to help them, Father, and help me to bring them along and help me to lay out the vision in my heart and make it clear to them that these young men and young ladies may run with it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, last week we started uh, through these, and I told you that these concepts down through here were really the reality verses of the Christian life. We talked about how, and I said this earlier, how we all like to pretend. Uh, but we, 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 we told you that uh, these things are really what makes the Christian life the Christian life. And these are the qualities of Christ that get built into our lives when we have a real, working, viable relationship with Him. And we talked about in verse 8, where it talked about ruling with diligence. Remember I told you that that is the example of, of, of leadership role in a church. And I told you that it doesn't, not dealing with lording over people and having a power base, whether you're a deacon or, or even a pastor or somebody that's in charge of something that you lord over people, but rather leading by example. And the examples that you lead by are the very examples that we're talking about. We talked about showing mercy with cheerfulness and how that applies into your life. We talked about uh, love without dissimulation. I told you that there was two kinds of dissimulation when it comes to people and loving people. One is partiality, where you love this group, but you don't love that group. And the other one is hypocrisy, by which you simply say, well, I really love you, but you really don't, you know. And uh, we do it all the time. I mean, uh, we all do. I mean, how many times has somebody said to us, would you pray for me? And you said, oh, I'll pray for you. You know what? We forgot to pray about them all week long, and next week we see them, and we thought, oh, never prayed for that person. You know, that's just the way we are. We're going to change those things, but that's, that's the way we are. Verse 10 talked about being kindly affected one to another with brotherly love. And we talked about our church as a family concept, taking care of each other. And then verse 11 talked about not slothful in business. And we talked about that that deals with the fact that if you work for somebody and you work for them, then give them, uh, give them what they're paying for you to do. We talked about if those people who have their own businesses, then you be honorable with what you do in dealing with people. We talked about how that these things affect every single thing we do in ministry. And our ministry is with people. And uh, you learned last Thursday night that reality is a hard thing to deal with. And uh, reality is something that we all have to face, and it's something that the Bible forces us back to. So what the Bible says in the book of James, that, that the Bible is like a, a, a looking glass. And the Bible talks about a man who looks into that looking glass, which is the Word of God, and he sees his natural face. In other words, he, the Bible shows us who we really are. And the Bible says that one guy takes heed to it, and he recognizes who he is, and he does something about it. The other one walks away, and he forgets what manner of man he was. And that's exactly what we do. And that's why, very frankly, the first thing that goes in your life and my life when we start to get out of fellowship with God, quit reading the Bible. Second thing we go is we quit going to church. 
Why? Because those two things force us back to reality. And when we get in that mode, reality is not the number one thing on our hit parade, see? So now let's move on through the rest of these and let's look at this. And I told you last time I call these the reality text of the Christian life. And uh, it's, it's, it's great for you and us. All right, look at verse 11 now. Verse 11 says, he said, and not, sloth, not, not slothful in business, but fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. Now, I call fervent in the Spirit, I, I call that passion. And it's very important in ministry, but you've got to have the, uh, the experience uh, to be able to keep it under control. And this is why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, that he wasn't to be a novice, that he had to get some experience. And experience is absolutely essential in ministry. And this is what I want to do as we come through these levels. I want to get you on all three levels, but specifically the level, the third level, I want to get you all the experience I can. All the experience I can. Because the experience is the key that really helps you keep your fervent spirit uh, under control. And uh, I, I remember years and years and years ago, I had a, got a call from a, from a guy that was a, a, a boss. And one of, one of the kids that was in my uh, ministry, I had a college and career class at that time, uh, worked for him. And he called me up, and he was the nicest guy in the world. And he, he said, uh, he says, uh, is this Pastor Alexander? And I said, yes, it is. And he explained who he was. And he asked me, he says, well, do you have so-and-so under your ministry? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, he says, you know what? He says, you got to help me with something. He says, I like this kid. But he said, you got to help me. He says, because I'm going to have to fire him. And I don't want to fire him. But he's not leaving me any choice. And I said, okay. I said, what's he doing? He says, well, you know what? He's a Christian. And I'm, uh, and I'm not. But he is, and that's fine. And he says, you know what? Uh, he carries his Bible, he reads his Bible, and I have no problem with that. But he says he's got to the point where he's so obnoxious with it that he's really he's turning people off. Now, here's an unsaved guy that has given me a great perspective on what's wrong with most Christians, and he's lost. And he says, like last week, he says, you know what, lunch hour, the guys are sitting around, they put a cardboard flat cardboard box on a, something, and they're playing cards. He walks over and tips up the table with the cards on it and, and lets them have it, you know, about how playing cards is, is you know, going to send you all to hell. And I said, well, first of all, I said, I want you to understand that I don't believe playing cards is going to send you to hell. I mean, I never missed my opportunities either. I said, I believe that not trusting Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior will send you to hell, not playing cards. But the bottom line is, you know what? That's not what a Christian should do. And I said, I want to apologize for him. He said, well, what do I do? And I said, well, here's what you do. I'm going to talk to him. I said, I'm going to try to work through it with him. I appreciate you calling me. But at the end of the day is this. If he doesn't stop it, fire him. Fire him. I mean, let's work with him. Let's try to salvage him. Let's put a big hook on him and try to pull him out of the snow. But the bottom line is this. If you can't fix him, fire him. And then you know what he'll do? He'll walk around town, oh, I'm persecuted for God because I'm such a witness. You know, I mean, that's just the way they think. The bottom line is simply this. Fervent in spirit is a great thing, but uh, you've got to be able to keep it under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. My best example of fervent that I ever heard in my life, and, you know, everybody talks like this, you know, and it's, it's true to a sense. It really is. 
Remember, I talked to an old plumber one time, and this old plumber, I mean, he'd, he'd been plumbing for, you know, all of his life. You know, and he had the bib overall type thing, you know, real, about 60 years old, real lean like a fence post, you know, teeth all gone from the chew all of his life, you know. And just, you know, and he, he probably could fix anything, anytime, anywhere. He probably had more knowledge and wisdom and understanding uh, about what he did in his trade than anybody coming out. So he's probably right in what he said. But he said this. He said, you know what? In the old days, and you ever notice how we always go back to the old days and things? You tell your kids because they don't want to stand out five minutes, wait for the bus. How you had to walk three miles in the snow to go to school, see? And, and many of us did. My walk when I went to high school was more than three miles. Uh, but it, the bottom line is, you know, our kids complain because, you know, the car, the car is not warmed up enough when you take them to school. Well, if you just throw them out there and let them walk the one time, they'd be, they'd be but see, we, we, we always do that. It's true in the, whatever you do. Military is the same way. You talk to a Marine that was in the Marines in the 60s or the 70s, and he'll, he'll talk about how they baby the Marines in boot camp today. I know when I was in the Army in 68, they don't do a lot of things today that they did back then. They don't cuss anymore. The DIs can't cuss the people anymore, see? Boy, I'll tell you what, you, you, you want to have a notebook to get down your general orders, you want to have a notebook to get down your rifle number, your serial number, but you also want to have a notebook to get down the cuss words you never heard before. I mean, they were incredible. <laughs> but they're not on the cuss anymore. We did what something we called, we fought with what they called pugil sticks. Pugil sticks is where you put a football helmet with a big cage face on it, and you get a thing with two padded on the end, and you beat the fire out of each other till you can't, that one can't stand up. They don't do that anymore, see? They don't do that anymore. They have sensitivity classes now and all that thing, you know. I mean, today when you get in battle, you got to get on the phone to your commanding officer and ask if you can shoot back while they're shooting at you, see. And the Marines in the old days, they look at it and they think, well, you know what, they don't train Marines back then like they do now, you know. And they're probably right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the culture we come out of in our own society. I think that the longer society, back then, society had a different set of priorities, I think they were closer to the Philadelphian church age. I think their Bible, even by unsaved people, were still reverenced. You realize back in the <coughs> 60s and the 50s and the 40s, when you went into court, you put your hand on a King James Bible and had to swear on that King James Bible, you're going to tell the truth. Now that it is, ask you. <coughs> like, that's going to do a lot of good. You know why they had to put your hand on the Bible back then? Does anybody know why? Because they reverenced the Bible as the final authority of truth, and most people back then would be afraid to lie putting their hand on the Bible because God killed them. People ain't afraid of that. Try that next time. And, uh, you know, in the old days, that's the way it was. And a country without a Bible will in time lose its passion and lose its perspective and lose its purpose. So things don't, that used to mean something don't mean something anymore. So it's true in everything. This old plumber said, <laughs> he said, you know what? In the old days, we used to put on a piece of pipe and then we'd turn the water on and we'd keep up with the flow, putting on the next piece of pipe till the job was done. I thought to myself, now that's fervent. <laughs> that's passion. But that's the way it is. And I'm telling you something, when it comes to being fervent in the spirit, there's no place that la- more place that laziness has no part than in the ministry. 
You know that most pastors are basically lazy when it comes to the ministry? You know, they look, for, they look for snow days more excited about it than your kids are about not going to school next week. I mean, it snows on Wednesday, they're already canceling Sunday. And it's a thing where, you know, they don't want to do any more than they have to. And, you know, it's a tragedy that's that way, but that's just, that's just the way it is. My model for, for fervent in the Bible, the best one I've ever seen is over there in Acts chapter 8 where Philip is that great evangelist down there, you know, and God's got that Ethiopian eunuch on the backside of the desert out there. And the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit of God told Philip to go join thyself to that man, he ran. He ran. You know why? He was fervent in the Spirit. Fervent in the Spirit. You got to have the fire that drives you. And of course, uh, you know what? That's just the way it has to be. And most Christians uh, or most pastors... Most people, when it comes to dealing with people or ministry, uh, they're lazy when it comes about it. You know what? I, I have a standard rule. Boy, I'll let anybody work in ministry with me when you get to a certain point, but you better understand that when I give you somebody to work with and you take three weeks to hook up with them uh, or you, you, you don't stay on top of it or you let two and three weeks slide without touching base with them, you're out of a job, man. Well, I can do that. You know, working with people requires to be fervent about what you do. And he says, fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. We get fervent about everything but serving the Lord. There's guys that when, uh, you know, when the deer season comes in, they get so excited they can't sleep at night. They plan their whole year around going deer hunting. And you should if you like it. There's guys that think about going fishing in Canada, going fishing here. There's women who dream about going to Hawaii or going on a vacation or going here. And we focus on that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it shouldn't be more passion in that than it is than serving the Lord. That's where we get sometimes. Then he says in verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Now this hope here is the hope of Christ coming back. And uh, every day... You and I should get up with the joy uh, that today might be the day that the Lord's coming back. Now, I say that, and let me say this, because I don't want to put anybody on a, a false guilt trip here today. You probably got some young Christian out there, somebody that maybe just got saved a short while back, and they'll say, well, I don't feel that way. So you think there's something wrong with you. That's not true. That's not true. I'm not saying that you get saved and the next day you just understand everything about the Lord's coming and be excited about it. I'm not. But through the process, through the process of growing spiritually, through the process of letting somebody help you get you through that process, you learn to make priorities in your life. As you begin to understand your purpose, as you begin to understand your perspective, and as you begin to have that passion, you realize that the bottom line is this. There ain't really nothing in this world worth anything other than God. But it takes you a while to get there. I never try to push people faster than they want to go. I try to gently nudge them, and I try to help them and always keep the door open. But you know what? This idea of somebody getting on your case and just beating you over the head all the time about you ought to be growing here and growing there, it doesn't work. Now, obviously, if you've been around for a while, you ought to be, you ought to be maybe farther than you should. You take young Christians who are just trying to find their way through and trying to work through their issues. You've got you to give them the space and give them the time to do it. They'll get to it in time. They'll get to it in time. But every day, you and I that's been around for a while, every day, every day, you and I who's been around for a while ought to get up with just one thought, and that is the thought that today might be the day uh, that uh, he might come back. 
You know, we live in a defeated Christianity today. I've never seen God's people uh, so defeated in everything that they do. I've never seen uh, the Christianity in such a denial of reality of life of where they're at. And you know where the problem really lies? The problem really lies is because they don't have the hope in their life that they're rejoicing in that today might be the day that the Lord comes back. Let me tell you something. You understand where the road starts for you and for me to getting out of fellowship with God, do you? You want to know the bottom line where it starts in your life and maybe it's not apparent to anybody. Maybe it won't manifest itself for six months, a year, two years down the line. But I'm telling you right now, you need to understand that where the road starts for you and for me to getting out of fellowship with God is the day we get up and forget to start our day just like that, like it's the last one you're going to be here. You know why? That's your perspective. When you lose your perspective of why you're here, when you and I lose our perspective of why we're here, then we got nothing to rejoice in. It says rejoice in hope. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm rejoicing in the fact that I hope I'm saved. It's not what he's talking about. I know that I'm saved. There's no doubt in my mind. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, you know, or you should know, there's no doubt. It's not, well, I'm rejoicing in the fact that I hope I'm saved. It's rejoicing in the fact that because I am saved, the only hope I have is Jesus Christ and Him coming back today. That's where it's at. It's exactly where it's at. And the day we get up and we forget to start our day just like that is the day we lose our perspective and we start down the road of losing everything else. And it's all about perspective. Then he says in verse 12, patient in tribulation. Now, nobody likes tribulation trials and tribulations. I mean, uh, I mean, nobody does. But again, it's all about your perspective. The reason he says to be patient in tribulation is because that's how you grow. And it's, again, it's about your perspective, seeing things as they really are, the reality. We don't grow just from the good things in life. We grow through the bad things in life. Look at Job. The greatest book in the Bible that talks about the fact that here's a man who loved God and eschewed evil, and look what he went through. He goes through in seven days what you and I will never go through in a lifetime. Yet, the Bible says that he's better on the other end of it when he comes out of it. Did he like going through it? Absolutely not. While Job's got some of the clearest, most reality verses between a man and God uh, that you ever find in your life. It was Job that got so bad that he cursed the day that he was bored. It was Job who told God just to get away from him and let him drown in his own spit. It was Job that came to the point that looked around that everybody was trying to help him and he was so miserable and such in agony that he said, miserable comforts are you all. He come to the point where he went through the toughest time in his life. And yet, did you ever study Job? I mean, you stop and look at what he lost. He lost his, he lost his kids. He lost his his. his his, his sheep and his cows and his oxen. He lost everything that was monetary to him. God reached down and allowed the devil to take everything that was anything in his life that was tangible, something that you could reach out and touch, something you could figure up on a calculator, something you could, you could look out and out your window and say, wow, look what I got. And God in one fell swept, let the devil take all that from him. Somebody ran back and said, oh, you're killed. Your kids were, you know, somebody just rode, rode in here and, and a big wind come down and killed all your kids. 
Somebody else came in and said, Miles, you were watching your cattle, and somebody come down and took all your cattle. The only thing that he didn't lose was his wife, and that's what he should have been putting on the deal. I mean, he's in, the, he's in the agony of it all when he's going through all these things, and his wife comes in and says, uh, instead of saying, honey, can I do something for you? Honey, would you like a pillow? Honey, would you like this? Honey, would you like a new piece of pottery to scrape the pus off your sword? Honey, would you like some orange juice? Would you like this? Would you no, her thing is curse God and die. Not exactly what he needed to hear at that particular time in life. And then after he loses all his monetary things, he loses the number one thing we want to hold on to in our life. That's his health. He gets boils all over his body to the, to the disgusting degree that he's sitting on an ash heap, scraping the pus off with a piece of broken pottery from this busted-down house. It'll be hard for us to find ourselves in that situation, even in life. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost parents. Some of you have lost you know, loved ones in your life, but did you ever lose everybody in your, all of your family in one time? Some of you have lost your homes, burned down with fire. Some of you have come through some tough times, lost your job, but did you have it all gone from you where you had absolutely nothing? He had happened to him in seven days' time what will not happen to the average individual in a lifetime. And you know, you know what? He had no Bible. He had no Bible. No Bible written in Job. Job's back there, time akin to Abraham. There, Moses hasn't written anything yet. He has no Bible. He has no church. He has no pastor he can call. He has no Christian friends. The three friends that show up don't do him any good. They misdiagnose the whole problem and just add more weight to it. No, Job is in the Bible for one reason, I believe for you and for me in a practical application, Job is in the Bible for one reason. Job goes through all that he goes through in, in seven days, what you and I will never go through in a lifetime, without any Christian radio, without any Joe Olstein, without any Christian this, without any that, without any Bible, without any pastor, without any church, without any friends, simply to show you and me that in our life, God is simply enough. And I, I feel ashamed of myself sometimes, ladies and gentlemen. I do have a Bible. I do have Christian friends. I do have the Holy Spirit of God living inside me. He didn't. I do have a church. I do have a Christian radio and TV and Christian books. I do have all of those things. And yet, in all of those things in my life, many times I'm such a mamsy-pamsy baby about the trials and tribulations that come in my life. The reality of the book of Job and the reality of what he is saying here is to be patient in tribulation is simply this. When you rejoice in the hope that you have and the hope of Jesus Christ and his coming is in your life, you have everything that you need to get through whatever you've got to go through. The problem is we don't really realize those things. Patient in tribulation. Nobody likes it. We got to live in the reality that many times, and you see this in the book of Job, many times in this particular case here, God had a message for Job. He had something he wanted Job to learn. He had something that he wanted Job to see and understand that there was no other way that Job would have got it, so God did it this way. And you know what he did? He used the devil as the messenger boy to get the message to Job that God had for him. And many times in your life and my life, God has a message for you and me. 
He has something he wants us to learn. And yes, he will. He'll use the devil as the messenger boy to deliver the message. Don't get so focused on the messenger boy that you lose the message. And that's what happened. What happened to us all the time. And again, it's about our perspective. The reason he says be patient in tribulation is because that's how you grow. We don't grow just from the good things in life. We grow through the bad things also. Do you know what God does? Do you have any inkling how God will, will work in your life? You'll come to Sunday morning and you'll get some great truth. Or you'll come to Thursday night Bible study and God will, will, will prick your heart about something in your life. And you'll say to him, yes, Lord, that's, that's something I got to deal with or that's something I got to work on. Or, Lord, that great truth you showed me in the Bible is such a great truth. You'll come to one of our little special meetings that we have or one-on-one -on -one or something, and you'll come to the point where you, God will give you something and he'll lay it out in your life and you'll see it and you'll grasp it and you'll say to yourself, man, this is an absolutely great truth. Absolutely wonderful. Then you know what he'll do? He'll put you into some trial or tribulation to show you how that great principle now works. He'll, he'll give you the great truth, and then so you can learn how the operational side of that truth is. He'll put you in some adversity and show you how not only it works, but show you how you grow through it. And when you come out of it, you're stronger than you were before you were in it. That's how he does it. That's how he does it. You think they build great football teams by sitting around in training camp eating ice cream? Sitting around campfires and roasting marshmallows? No, they run till it hurts. They run till they puke. They work out till they can't move anymore. You've got to go through whatever you're going to do in life that's going to be something that is, is, is meaningful. It's going to cost you something. It's going to be some pain involved. And most of us do not recognize that that's how he does it. You know why? Wrong perspective. First thing we do when something happens in our life is we don't stop and say, I wonder what God's doing. First thing we do is run to the ambulance, to the hospital. Pick up the phone. Oh, Bob, what's happened in my life? What am I going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to grow through it. Well, that's what you should do. Now, I say all that, and I realize that sometimes we bring tribulation in our life because of stupid things that we do. But you know what? You grow through that. Life is a process of learning by the things that we do right and God brings tribulation in, and by the things we do wrong, and God brings tribulation in. But it's still a growing process. You've heard me say it many, 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 many times. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. Everybody on this planet, saved, lost, is going to make mistakes. The pastor that gets up and tries to pretend that, that he's without mistakes or without sin or without this and tries to hold you is a sham. The bottom line is we're all going to make them. I suggest to you that you get the Bible, apply the Bible, and make as few of them as you can. Amen. I mean, that's a good piece of advice. I'm not giving you a license to go out, oh, man, I can go out and do whatever I want to do. Yeah, but there'll be, a, there'll be a price tag. I'm not telling you that. You and I will have enough struggle without going out and looking for it. But I am telling you this, that when you do make a mistake, Learn from it. 
I have, I've told you this before, I have, a, I have something that I hold in my heart so hard and fast, I don't always do it, but boy, it's always there even when I don't do it, and that is simply this, do not make under any circumstances the, in ministry the same mistake twice. Because when you do, you're just holding up a flag. I haven't learned a thing. Patience is absolutely key in ministry. And you know how you learn patience. You learn patience through the things that you go through. Ministry requires patience because you have to wait on people. People are never going to be, and this is a failure of so many Christians, young Christians too. Young Christians, I talked about the zeal or the passion, but they don't have the experience or the practical application to realize that that sometimes young Christians or people who are struggling, you can't expect them to understand your zeal. How many times have you had to, how many times have people started coming to this church, dropped out, came back, dropped out, came back, dropped out, came back, Without almost without exception, there's never a time that, that, that anybody would ever say to them, you can't come back again. Now, there are exceptions to that when you have somebody who just is flat out trying to hurt what you're trying to do. And I mean, you're not, that's like saying, you know, here's the key to my house. I'm going to be gone for the next four hours. So you got to have some sense, but you also got to have patience. And you got to realize that some people, it just takes a while. I think that's one of the perspectives that I want you to begin to see going into this third level. The things aren't always the way they appear. We be very judgmental toward people sometimes because they don't meet the standard we want them to have, but we fail to see and understand what's really going on in their life at that particular point that may cause them to do that. And obviously, when it's your ministry, the first thing you want to do is take it personal. But you can't do that. You just can't. You've got to learn to discern what you're dealing with in every given situation so you know how to respond to it. But patience is absolutely key in ministry, waiting on people. You've had the situations where the husband got saved and the wife wasn't ready, and you had to wait for that wife to come to the point where God got her ready. I've seen places where the wife got saved and the guy wasn't ready, and you had to wait for God to work in his heart. I've seen situations where, where God came down and, and did something with somebody and it just took a while for them to really get it all figured out. And my philosophy is simply as this, and this is why I told you, on these levels of this next thing we're going to go to for this next eight-year period, you have no pressure for me on it. You can, you can get in, get out whenever you want. I'm just going to take the ones who want to do it and I'm moving out with it. And I'm going to accomplish what God has. I don't care if it's two of you, one of you, a hundred of you. It doesn't matter to me. I will take what God gives me, and I'm patient enough to let the rest of you get there when you get there. I just hope that you get there before he comes back, but that's okay. It's up to you. It's up to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. It says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Oh, who wants to glory in tribulations? Oh, praise the Lord, I just got in a wreck. Praise the Lord, I just came from the doctor and my blood sugar is way over. I'm a diabetic. (laughs) 
It says glory in tribulations. How? Why? Look at the rest of the verse or listen to the rest of the verse. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. You see? Now, do you want to be, learn the ministry? The ministry requires patience. Do you want patience? Then buckle your seatbelt because you're going to have to go through some tribulation. In ministry, you get patience for others learning to wait on them and their trials and troubles by learning to wait on God through your trials and troubles. It's just that simple. There's a value in going through trials. But when we don't have the right purpose and we don't have the right perspective, then we see it totally backwards. And we don't understand that, that I'm going through this because God wants to make me better. I've told you this before, but it's a great illustration. And it's one of the greatest things I've ever, probably ever heard in my life. Years and years ago, there was a man that I met whose name was Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley had five, when I knew him, he had five diseases that were killing him. He looked like something out of the Night of the Living Dead when you saw him. Very frail, very pale. I don't know how he did what he did. He kept up an active ministry where he preached. He could only preach one time, and then he'd have to take a break for like 12 hours before he could get back up and do it again. He had, I, looked, I, I looked at his suitcase one time when I was helping him into a, his hotel room, and looked, his inside of his suitcase looked like a pharmacy. He had so many pills he was taking. This guy, he finally died. Don't ask me what he died of because there's five or six things that could have been. I have no idea. But he was, one of the, he was one of the greatest Christians that I ever met in my life. He was one of the kindest, gentlest men. And even though there were times when I knew he was in tremendous pain, he always come to the place where he always got the job done. He was one of the greatest examples in my life. And he said something one time that I never, never forgot. And for those of you who aspire to understand ministry, because I'm going to begin in our time now in everything that we do. This is why I say there'll never be a Sunday morning, a Sunday, uh, you know, Sunday night, Thursday night, or in any class that I don't take the time to point these things out. And I suggest that you, you, and along with everything else you do, get you a little journal someplace that you can you begin to catalog these principles of ministry that I'm going to give you. That up before, they were just neat things that Bob said, but I can't remember what it was or how it applied. These are things that are going to carry you down the road 10 or 15, 20 years from now. These little things that will make the difference of where you're at now from where you're going to be then. He said this. And he always had a very unassuming way of, of saying things. He'd always sing, say things that would, the way he would say them would make you think. And he asked the question one time, to a, and I was in the crowd that he was preaching to. And he asked the question, he was talking about going through things. And if anybody had a handle on, on going through problems in life and, and staying on task for the ministry, he did. And he asked the question, he said this, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And the average purpose person says, well, you get lemon juice. That's how you make lemonade. And he had related the story that he was from Atlanta or Savannah or someplace, I forget where he was, down in Georgia. And he had, he had related the story that in, uh, it was a period of time when they were putting the cyanide in the Tylenol capsule, remember that? And people were dying all across the country. Some of you remember it. 
Well, somebody was going into the grocery store with a syringe, you know, like a needle or more than one that had some kind of poison in it. And they were walking over to the grocery store and they were injecting it in the lemons. So the people were buying the lemons, squeezing the lemons, making lemon juice, lemonade, and then ingesting the poison and dying. And his point was, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And the answer would was lemon juice. His answer was no. When you get a lemon, you really, when you squeeze a lemon, you really get what's on the inside of the lemon. He says, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? And then his answer was, you get what's really on the inside. You see? Because what's really on the inside will really come out when we're squeezed. You can walk around and praise the Lord all you want, but when you get squeezed, what comes out of your mouth? You see? When, it gets, when you get squeezed, what's really on the inside is what comes out. And he says, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Watch this, verse 4, and patience, experience. Now, you want experience in the ministry? Because this is what you got to have. This is what you all, one level, two level, or three level, got to get to. I told you Thursday night, I'm going to take the, what I've learned the last 35 years of my life in ministry, and I'm going to pour it out and pour it in. But please don't think for a heartbeat, please don't think for a moment that just because I shoot it out of my mouth and you write it down on paper, you're going to understand how to use it. God's going to put you through some trials. God's going to put you through some tests. God is going to put you through some things, that uh, some tribulation that you're going to go through, and God's going to grow you through it, and God's going to show you, and from that you're going to get experience. You're going to get experience. And then it says, and patience experience, and experience hope. You see, hope is the ability to see God in every situation. The word hopeless does not, should not be in the Christian's vocabulary. <laughs> I deal with all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. Many of you do also. My goal in time is to get you all up to that point where uh, that we, we can, you can learn how to do these things. But the bottom line is this. I'll sit down with a couple, you know, or an individual, whoever, and they'll have some serious problems in their life or their marriage or whatever, and they'll, they'll lay them out. And it pretty much goes the same way. Either the guy will start or the woman will start. She'll lay out where her heart's at, and then he'll lay out where his heart's at. And, you know, most of the time they're good people and they really want to do what's right. They're just caught in some things, you know, and, and have to work some things out. But many times, and many times I've had individuals, guys and gals, sit down and tell me about where they were coming from in their life. They want to get their life turned around, but they got a lot of baggage they got to deal with. And almost always they'll ask me this question once they lay the thing out. And they'll lay it out, they'll talk about it, we'll dialogue back and forth, and then they'll probably say, they'll say something like this. Well, Bob, now that I've laid this out, is there really anything we can do for this? And you know what I always say back to them, you know what, <clears throat> that's really not the question. The question is, no matter what your problems are today, the question is not, is there anything to do? The question is, <laughs> will you do what you need to do? Because with Jesus Christ, through the tribulation, it's hope. There's always hope for a Christian. I don't care how bad off you are. 
<clears throat> if you're unsaved here this morning, I got news for you. You're in a world that is upside down and you're trying to swim against the whole mainstream and it's going to swallow you up and drag you right down to hell. That's a pretty bleak future. But you know what? For you, I got a hope. That hope is Christ's death on the cross. If you're here this morning and you're a saved person and your life is upside down, you can't get ahead of the game, and you did a lot of dumb things, you made a lot of bad, bad choices, a lot of bad mistakes, and you're sitting here underneath the weight of all that today, and you look at me and you say, hey, I want to do what's right, I want to serve God, <clears throat> what, is there, what can I do? The bottom line is this, even in your situation, there's hope. The hope is taking your life and turning it around and beginning to do the right things, making the right decisions, and stop making the bad choices you've made how it works. Exactly how it works. And when it comes to the ministry, <clears throat> you glory in tribulations because you know that the tribulation worketh patience. And patience brings you to experience and experience brings you to the last thing and that is its hope. There's hope in the fact that when I'm in, there's a way out. You don't have to look at anybody ever that you're dealing with when they say, I don't know what to tell you. Man, that is a bad situation. Boy, I don't know. <clears throat> Thought about suicide because that looks like that's the only way out. No. There's always a way out when it's with God. It's always a way out the way it is with God. You know, I used to work at a factory. <clears throat> and years and years ago, and I was in charge of the warehouse. And in his warehouse was all these parts up on tiers of stacks of tiers. And <clears throat> I always thought about what a fun time it would be to get rid of my frustration, to just start going down at the beginning of that. And they were like 200, 200 yards long, just parts for washing machines and dryers because it was at the Hoover Company, and just parts for everything. I mean, little millions of little pieces, little rivets, little pulleys, little wires, little this, little... And I thought to myself, wow, that would be a great thing. If you want to get rid of your frustration someday, just walk down there. You're mad at the company. You're mad at your boss. You're mad at this. You're mad at life. Just start ripping everything off and pulling it down and just throwing it up. Throwing all the little washers up that you've had to carry over there, and they yell at you because they're not there on time, and throwing this around and throwing that up. And when you finally get down to the end of that quarter, and you've just had a ball throwing everything everywhere and you realize you've come to the end, you turn around, you're going to go out and then you realize, you know what, you've now got to walk back through and pick up everything that you threw down to get out because you have blocked your path with all of the carnage of the stuff that you was having fun throwing up in the air and now it's blocking your way out. And you know what you got to do? You got to start picking up every piece and create a path to get out of that mess that you made. And many times life is the same way, isn't it? We go through life and we throw this in the air and that in the air and care about this and don't care about that and we make the biggest messes and finally when we get down to the end of where it's at, we got to turn around and the only way out is the back way you came in, but you got to get over all of the junk that you carelessly threw and your path to get in. And working with people, you got to be patient with that. You've got to realize that people get into problems and it doesn't always get out just like that. Now, I'm giving you, there's some things you can get into in life and you can walk out of it just as fast as you got in. But the longer you're in it and the more messes you make, the more time it takes. And patience is the key. Patient in tribulation. 
Then he says in verse 12, <clears throat> continuing instant in prayer. Now, there's two aspects to prayer, your prayer life. And I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way or not, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Now, that'll deal with your walk with God every day. You know, I used to read the stories in church history about these guys, and I, I never figured it out. I used to read how that uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards and, uh, and uh, Wesley would, would travel on horseback, you know, eight or nine uh, hours a day to go to the next place to preach. And, uh, you know, and then they'd get up and they'd preach. And, and then uh, yet, the, you know, the Bible says that they, or the, the books about them said that they, they prayed, you know, without ceasing. And they prayed nine, ten hours a day. And I would think to myself, now that can't be right. I mean, the guy had to sleep. Uh, he, he's preaching. So he's traveling from one place to the other. It takes him eight to ten hours to get there. He's got to sleep at least eight hours or seven hours or sometime. How in the world do you figure eight hours, ten hours praying a day? And for the longest time, I couldn't figure it out until I realized that the prayer they were talking about is the prayer that we ought to be in our lives all the time, and that is to pray without ceasing, continuing, instant in prayer, pray without ceasing. In other words, pray all the time. You ought to get up in the morning and your whole relationship and life, and here again, young Christians, you're not there yet. It's okay. I'm talking about things that for people who've been saved for five or six years, three or four years, two or four years, who begin to get a base down in their life and begin to work towards some things, you'll get there. You don't ever want to go out of here if you're a new Christian. And I'm always very careful of this because we always have a host of young Christians or people maybe that aren't in the Bible where they need to be and they want to be, but they're not there yet. So I'm always very careful of what I say, that I always make it completely understandable that, that uh, there's a process to get here. But if you've been saved three or four years or more, come on. I mean, uh, you ought to come to the point where you get up in the morning and your perspective and your purpose is all focused around the fact that, that uh, you're hoping Jesus Christ and you start a conversation with him and you just go through the whole day talking with him about the good things, about the bad things, and, uh, and just keep that conversation going. You ought to pray 8 to 10 hours a day. And I don't mean, obviously, when you're driving to work, you don't want to close your head and bow your head and close your eyes and fold your hand. You're going to run into somebody else and kill them. But the bottom line is, in your heart, prayer is in the position of your body. Prayer is your attitude of heart of where you're at with God. And you ought to have a conversation with Him all day long. If you went on an 8-hour trip with somebody that was your friend. And they're in the left, you're there in this side of the seat, right side, you're driving. You start out at 8 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> you got a 10-hour trip. Wouldn't you think it was a little strange if you drove the whole 10 hours <clears throat> during the day when both of you are awake and nobody said anything to each other? I mean, uh, even if you turn on the radio, some song comes on or some news report comes on and something says this, you have something to say about it, you dialogue back and forth. Wouldn't you think it's strange that you got in a car with your best friend or a friend of yours and drove eight, ten hours and you talked to them all the way on that trip? Well, every day of your life when you get in a car, you ought to realize that your best friend is sitting right next to you in that seat. And you ought to talk with him just like there's somebody there. You know what they say about crazy people, don't you? They talk to themselves. Well, every Christian ought to be crazy when it comes to the world because you ought to talk to yourself. You know what Psalms is? Psalms is a book of somebody talking to himself. That's what it is. 
And you ought to talk to yourself on a regular basis, but not to you, but to the one that's living inside you. Continuing in prayer, pray without ceasing. Another aspect of it is you don't ever quit praying. Matthew chapter 15, I think it starts around verse 21, tells you the five reasons that God doesn't always answer our prayers when we want them answered. We've talked about it before on Thursday night. And in your daily walk with God, some God does, sometimes God doesn't answer when you want Him to. And that's why you continue in prayer. You continue in prayer. And you stay with it. No matter what happens, you don't give up. You stay with it and you talk with God all through your walk, all day long. Then the second concept he says here is to be instant in prayer. He says continuing instant in prayer. Two concepts, continuing in prayer and instant in prayer. I heard an old preacher years and years and years ago. He was a great preacher. He's dead now. His name was Tommy Leatherwood. Tommy Leatherwood was a pastor in the Mansfield, Ohio Baptist Church. And I went down there one night. Uh, they had me down to, uh, uh, I played my trumpet and, 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 and do some things when I first got saved. And I, I heard Tommy preach that night. He was a great preacher. He's probably in his 60s or his 70s when I heard him. And he had pastored a church there. And he had a great orator power. He could really speak well. And I'll never forget that night he preached on the, uh, being instant. And, you know, he he talked about the three things that Christians ought to be instant in. And to me, I call this God consciousness. I call it so aware of God in your life that these things are automatic. And he said every child of God ought to be instant in three things. The first thing he ought to be instant in is being able to preach. Because Paul tells Timothy that he should preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. That simply means when you don't want to and when you want to. He said every Christian ought to be instant in preaching. He then said that every Christian ought to be instant uh, uh, in praying. And he went down through those things and laid them out, and it was a great sermon. And he said, every child of God should be ready in an instant to do three things for Christ. He should be ready in an instant to preach. He should be ready in an instant to pray. And he should be ready in an instant to die. And I thought to myself, wow, that's some wisdom. That's some wisdom. You see, if you're saved this morning, you're already ready to die. You may not recognize it yet. You may not want to die. I'm not saying you got to go out with a sign, shoot me, I'm ready to go home to heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. But you obviously know, as I do, that death is a reality. It's going to come sooner or later. I don't preach a funeral that I don't tell the people. You know, the greatest object lesson we have here today is the person in that casket. You know why? Because I stand here preaching full knowing full well. If Jesus Christ doesn't come back, someday somebody's going to preach my funeral and I'm going to be in a casket. It's a reality. And, you know, he said every, every Christian ought to be ready. Ought to be ready to do three things instantaneously. You ought to be ready to preach, you ought to be ready to pray, and you ought to be ready to die. Now, there's a great example of this in the Bible, and I don't know if you ever saw it before. Something that doesn't really jump out at you, but if you spend some time looking at it, it'll be back in Nehemiah chapter 2. I don't know if you ever saw this or not, but this is an example of, of, of praying an instant. You see, the difference between praying without ceasing is throughout your daily walk, but there's times in your life when you've got to get up an instant prayer. I mean, you're in a situation that you wasn't expecting, and here it is, and this is what we have here. And this is why that old preacher said that every, every Christian should be ready uh, in an instant to do three things for Christ, preach, pray, or die. 
And uh, we had to be ready in an instant to be able to pray in this sense. Now, the story back here is in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And uh, Nehemiah is going before the king, Ahasuerus here, and the king is going to allow the Jews to go back. There's some things that have changed here now, and he calls in Nehemiah uh, before him. And it, look what it says down there in one, I think it's in verse 4. It says, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? You see, here's the king. Nehemiah was just out there, whatever he was doing, fixing himself a sandwich or whatever, and somebody said, Hey, the king wants to see you. He said, Oh, Okay, get all the mayonnaise off my mouth. Okay, he walks in there and he walks up to the king and he says, "Yes, your Majesty, I hear you wanted to see me." And the king says, "Yeah, what request can I make you?" Now, see, instantly he doesn't want to say something stupid, so you know what he does? Instantly he sends up a prayer. Look at the next part of the verse. So the king said unto me, "For what dost thou make request?" So I prayed unto the God of heaven. See that thing? And said unto the king. See what he did? Right in the middle of that thing, while the conversation was going on, he was instant in prayer, and he said, okay, God, here's the chance. Now, what do you want me to do? And then God gave him the answer, and all in the space of a microsecond, instant in prayer. Now, that's not like when you just went around the corner and a guy with a radar gun caught you, and then you throw up an instant prayer, God... I hope the tinfoil on my hubcaps works. <clears throat> this is doing something for God where God puts you in a scenario that you're not expecting. And in that moment, while the conversation, and I, maybe you can't even understand it, while the conversation is going on in a millisecond, while it's transpiring and the words are coming out of your mouth and you're presented with something that instantly, while you're talking to that guy, you say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God says, this is exactly what I want you to say to him. Instant in prayer. Here's a great example. Verse 13. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Helping out those who have a need or are going through a tough time. I call them the secret Santas of Christianity. I knew an old boy. Some of you don't even know him. He's dead now. He died. I approached his funeral here a couple of months ago. But some of you were the recipient of his blessings. I knew him from the fitness center where I went, and his name was Dennis. And Dennis and I got to be good friends, and I witnessed to Dennis many, many, many times. And uh, I'll never forget, I, before I even really met Dennis, and this is about three or four years ago, I'm walking around the track, and he calls me over. And Dennis was an older guy, and he had very bad health. He could hardly walk. And he called me over, and he says, are you a preacher? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, you have a church? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, how many in your church? And I said, oh, I don't know, about 150, I guess, at that particular point in time. And he said, you got some people that need some help? And I said, well, there's always people that need help. It was Thanksgiving is when it was. He said, here. And he took my hand, and I felt something in my hand, and he says, you make sure that gets to where it needs to go. Look down in it, it was four $100 bills. See? And I went back to church that next Sunday and passed out those $100 bills to people for Thanksgiving. Or, and uh, you know what? He did it at Christmas. He did it every time that uh, it was a holiday. He, that's the kind of heart that he had. And he just didn't do it to me. There were several other guys there that had churches. He'd do it to them too. 
but he's somebody who just always wanted to help. There's a time in this church when, when Christmas comes around or, or Thanksgiving or sometime that, that the people in this church don't come to me and say, hey, look, here's some money, give this to so-and-so or give this to somebody, whoever think you need it, whatever the case may be. You know, that's the job of a church is distributing the necessity of the saints, helping out those who have a need. Now, sometimes they can be spiritual needs. Sometimes they can be physical needs. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, a church and a Christian ought to be generous with what God has given them, but not gullible in how they use it. I mean, you've got to be careful with what you do. Now, I follow a very clear line of, root, uh, of follow here. I, I like to help anybody, and I'm not against helping anybody. But I've been in this business for a while, and I know how people try to scam you. My rule of thumb is to take care of your own people in your own church first. That's my rule of thumb. But I'm not about helping anybody. I know this. When we used to meet down here in the little place down here, uh, the pavilion, we were there, what, I don't know, three or four years before we put a sign up? Chris, what happened? We put the sign up on a one week, and what happened the next Sunday? Yep. The sign was no more out. The paint wasn't even dry. Somebody driving by and said, that's a church. Let's hit them up. It wasn't hardly a, once a month, probably, or twice a month. I remember two of them come in, they left their whiskey bottles out on the step. Everybody had a heart attack when he sat over there because he kind of stretched and he had a big old handgun down inside of the deal. <laughs> How much did you want again, <clears throat> sir? <clears throat> hey, let me tell you something. <clears throat> I want to help anybody. And all I want is to be legit. But I know how the world is. One time years ago, and I've even seen them bring their kids into the equation. One time I watched, they called me on the intercom and said, hey, there's a couple out here, that their, their car broke down, and they say they need some help. Would you talk to them? And I always used to talk. I said, absolutely. I walked out, and there was, there was a, a man and a woman with two little kids. The little kids were with dirty clothes and, and, and all of this, you know. And I said to the parents, I said, I, I told the secretary, I said, you know, get the kids some candy bar, donut or whatever, see what's in there. If you know. I said, come on in. <clears throat> oh, what a sad story it was. Well, Pastor, we're coming up here to see, <clears throat> go to my <clears throat> sister's uh, funeral up in Nebraska, wherever it was, and our car broke down. Now, we slept in the car last couple nights, and kids haven't had anything to eat, and, and uh, we, just really, uh, we just really need some help. And I said, okay. I said, that's fine. I said, uh, <clears throat> my first question is, um, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, yeah, we're from, uh, <clears throat> we're from Louisiana, Alabama, whatever the case was. We're down there. We go to a Baptist church down there. It's just a really a great church. And, uh, you know, we, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're just traveling up here, and we broke down. And I, I hate to ask you. And he says, you know, we don't know what else to do. And I said, hey, no problem. Absolutely no problem. I said, would $1,000 do it for you? <clears throat> he said, well, I, I, yeah, $1,000 would be great. I said, you need more? I said, I, you know, I mean, you got three little kids there. Your card broke down. It's not going to be easy probably to get a towed. I said, $1,000 enough? Oh, yeah, Pastor, $1,000 would be just great. I said, no problem. I said, I'll go back and tell uh, the guy back here that takes care of our finances to get you a check for $1,000. And if you need to, we'll take somebody up the bank and help you cash it so you get the cash because it's probably hard to get it. I just need one thing. 
give me your pastor's name and phone number so I can verify that you're a member of that church. Because I always like to help people out, especially when they're a sister Baptist church. And <clears throat> I'm going to call your pastor, and I'm going to tell them that you're here, and you're down and out, and uh, they broke down, and because they're such good members in your church, that and they're hurting, you confirm for me that you're in your church, and they're really good, and they're involved, and um, no problem. We'll give you the, th you don't have to pay it back. I'm going to give you the thousand dollars because we're supposed to take care of each other. Now, what was your pastor's name and the name of your church? Well, what was his name? Uh, I said that's okay. I said just give me the name of the church. Honey, what was the what was the name? Bottom line was there was no church. There was no church. And once I started to probe the thing, <clears throat> and I started to find that thing out, I simply said, you know what? You got to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself that you drag your little kids in here for some scam to rip off money from God's house. You don't go to church anywhere, do you? No, sir, I don't. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you even a Christian? No, sir, I'm not. Or do you even on a trip from someplace? No, sir, we live downtown. I said, you know what? <clears throat> I don't have a problem helping you. I really don't. But here's what I have a problem with. You see all that we have here? God gave this to us. You see, everything we do here, God gave us. Now, I don't have a problem that you don't go to church. I don't have a problem that you don't want to have anything to do with God. I really don't. But my question to you is this. If the devil has taken such good care of you and you're living and doing for him, why would you live for the devil over here, but when he doesn't feed you, want to come to God to try to get the money to feed yourself? If he's such a good master to take care of you, why not let him take care of it? Now, I gave him $100 out of my own pocket because I have no problem giving somebody that needs the money $100 <coughs> to have them sit down and listen to me preach to them for an hour. Dollar a minute. But you can't stay past 100 minutes. I have no problem. I used to go to places when I'd be in a, when I'd be in a, Hotel someplace, didn't have anything to do. I'd go down there, take a whole bunch of $1 bills with me and go down where all the bums were and those things, you know, and walk up to that somebody out there in the street corner and I'd give them a couple of bucks and I'd say, hey, I'll, you know what? I'll give you a couple of bucks, but I want to talk to you. And I'd witness to them for 20 minutes. See, I don't mind giving the money out, but I'm going to make sure that you understand where it's coming from. You say, well, that guy just ripped you off and took your $2. I don't care. He's got to deal with that with the Holy Spirit of God. Bottom line is, I will pay you $2 to sit and listen to me. Not you guys. <laughs> you guys are going to pay me. but I, <clears throat> I, would, I, would, I would do that. I'm, it's not about not helping people. This church needs to help, and it does help people. But your concept of it, as far as coming in and thinking that the church and its finances are something that I can take advantage of are a little different than mine. And this church should take care of its own needs first. And I simply say to somebody when they come in, where do you go to church? Well, I go down here. And Chris has been with me when we've done this. I said, where do we go to church? Well, I go down here. Well, why isn't your own church helping you? Well, they don't do that. Well, why would you go to church that doesn't do that? I had a pastor friend one time. He's still my friend. And I would never do this. 
he had a deal with in his church. I, I don't I don't even think it's right, but this is what he did. He'd come to the place that somebody came into his church and said, I need some money, I need some help. He'd say, okay, that's fine, no problem. Let's see how much you've given over the last four years, and we'll give you back everything you gave. Does that work for you? <laughs> I couldn't do that. He did it. But then he's the same guy that he had a Sunday school on Sunday morning. You know, a lot of churches have Sunday school, then they have church. We don't have it. I'm lucky to get you here for one, let alone two. <clears throat> but they have Sunday school in the mornings, and they come in, and then, and then you stay for church. And a lot of his people were, he was noticing a lot of his people were coming to Sunday school and then leaving and not staying for church, which would make any pastor mad. You know what he did? This guy's nuts. I'd never do this. But you know what he did? He had one of his deacons dress up in a devil costume and walk up and down the parking lot. And when the people were leaving after Sunday school, not staying for church, he'd have a guy in a costume and say, hi, I'm glad you didn't stay for church this morning. <laughs> I love it, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it at all. <laughs> but if I ever do, I got three or four of you in mind to wear the suit, and I'm going to put a six of you out there. <clears throat> I mean, there has to be a balance in the thing, <clears throat> and the bottom line is you help people. And, and the Bible says, you know, the Bible says distributing to the necessity of the saints. My big gripe is, is giving people money and helping them physically and then not helping them spiritually and letting them die and go to hell. I have no problem with it at all. But I'm going to make sure that it's done right, and I'm going to make sure that it's not a scam. And first and foremost, you take care of the people in your own church. I'll tell you right now, you're in this church, and you know it's true. Nobody else knows who it is, but this church helps people every Christmas, every Thanksgiving. This church helps people throughout the year. There have been people that have lost their jobs and needed this or needed that or this church, but nobody knowing about it, never bragging about it, because that's the job of the church. The job of the church is to take care of those who take care of the house of God first. And I had, if, you know what? If that guy would have been 100 been legit and I'd have called down into Georgia or whatever it was and the pastor would have said, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. He's a deacon in our church. Preacher, would you help him? Would you take care of him? I'd say, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely I'll take care of him. If he's a member of your church and he's in good standing in your church and he's saved and he's a child of God and he's in a jam, whatever he needs, whatever he needs, We'll get to him. Necessity of the saints. Then the last one we're going to talk about here today, and we'll hold up here, is verse 13, <clears throat> given to hospitality. Now, that's a good one. You know, hospitality is not a shock about here today, and we'll hold up here, is verse 13, <clears throat> given to hospitality. Now, that's a good one. You know, hospitality is not a sign of cultural finesse or man-made rules of etiquette but rather a New Testament biblical principle. And some of the greatest evangelism work I've ever seen done was done around somebody's home in their kitchen or their living room or their dining room around dinner. I don't know how many times I've seen it. I've seen people that got saved in this church <clears throat> and came to know the Lord in this church because somebody long before they ever got saved just invited them over to have time of fellowship together. I've seen people that got saved in this church that come out to play volleyball and came out to Jason's Deli or come out to Funhouse Pizza when we used to go there and sat around and people talked to them. I've seen, I've seen new people come to the deal where I said, went up to them and I said, hey, are you coming over to eat tonight uh, with us afterwards? And they say, no, I don't, I don't think we're going to come. There. I said, oh, come on. You know what? We'll buy your dinner. Come on over tonight. We'll, we'll take care. We'll buy your dinner. They come out, buy the, have the time of their life. You know what? They show up the next week. They come back and it isn't long before God gets a hold of their heart, 
and they realize that this is the place they want to be because this is not somebody who's looking around to see where they can get their hand in your pocket. This is a church that's looking to see what we can do for you. I'm not interested in what you can do for me. I'm interested in what I can do for you and only interested in what you can do for others. And hospitality is the key. I don't know how many times I've seen it over the years where some of you people will take people in, invite them over for dinner, have a fun time, do some fun things, <coughs> and uh, it winds up going farther uh, than all the Sunday morning preachings and sermons that I could ever put together in a six-month period. Taking people in and, and working with them. Titus chapter 1, verse 8, is one of the requirements of being a bishop is to be a lover of hospitality. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, uh, it talks about elders are given to hospitality. You see, there's so many dimensions of the ministry. There's so many dimensions of, of learning of this thing about your purpose and understanding your perspective and your passion. There's so many levels of dealing with people. And that's why, as I talked about last Thursday night, this is what we've got to begin to do. We've got an eight-year program now. And in that eight years, the last six and a half, almost seven years, <coughs> we brought this church up to a point. Now we got to get it to the next level. And the next level is going to be harder, it's going to take longer, <coughs> but it'll pay off at the end because of the fact that by that time, this thing has to be well on its way <coughs> to, to take care of itself and stand on your own two feet, spiritually speaking. Well, let me say this to you, and then I'm going to close. <coughs> And whatever level you're on here today, and we talked about this the other night, but I want to reemphasize it again. Here's what you have to do at some point in your life. <clears throat> you have to. You come in, you get saved, or maybe you're already saved and you come in, but you got some problems. What I do is I put people in your world. I put myself in your world. Uh, the fact that you're working with somebody else or several other people never negates the fact that you can't spend time with me. I'll spend whatever time it takes. I'll do whatever I got to do. I'll put whatever in your life. I'll get you whatever you need to get it done. I'll help you however I can. <clears throat> Bottom line is this. That's what a church does. The church takes young Christians, young people who are struggling, young people, people who are trying to figure out where life is and get their life back on track, and we build around them everything that they need <clears throat> to help them stay accountable to the Word of God. And they come to the point where they respond to it. Many of you disciple them. Some of you are bringing them through the seven stages that changed the day they got saved. Some of you are working on other areas in their life. And you're doing exactly what we talked about today. You bring in the hospitality factor. You have them over. You do things with them. You take the whole, you understand the whole concept. And so for many of you, it's already in play. We just got to get it up a couple more levels and get some more experience into the aspect of it. But at the end of the day, it's about this. You're only going to be valuable in this church. You're only going to be valuable to God and to this church when you come to the place in your life that you learn to keep yourself accountable by the principles of the Word of God which are taught on Sunday morning and Thursday night and everything else that you get. People cannot keep us accountable forever. When I got, first got right with God and saved and all those things in my life, for the first three years of my life, I had two or three men who absolutely kept me accountable, four now that I think of it, who actually kept me accountable in various different areas. I don't think I would have made it without them. They took, each one was in a different aspect of my life. Each one fulfilled a different need in my life. Each one gave me exactly what I needed and held me accountable in different areas of my life. And it was those men that brought me up through to the place 
But you know what? There came a time in my life when I had to say to myself, Bob, you have to stand on your own. And I had to learn to listen on Sunday morning. I had to learn to listen on Thursday night. I had to learn to take the stuff that I was getting and apply it into my life that I could hold myself now accountable. And that's the only way, ladies and gentlemen, you're ever going to get to the place where you can help hold somebody else accountable. And I say that fully knowing that most of you are right on track with that. I'm not saying that like you all better get it together. Most of you have it together. But I don't want you to lose sight of that fact because that has to be your goal. And my job on whatever level you are, the first level, the second level, or the third level, is to help you with that. You third level guys ought to be at the place where you move into this section where I don't have to keep you accountable. That you learn exactly what this church should be as far as its purpose, its perspective, and its passion, and you hold that line and you don't deviate from that. That gives us the ability to bring the other ones up to those levels and give them what they need to help them. Because that's the way this church is going to function from this day forward. And uh, it, it's the only way that it's going to ever get to where God wants it to be. It's the only way I'm going to ever get the leadership to where it needs to be for the purposes that we talked about last Thursday night. So we'll hold up there. Uh, let me just say this to you. I, I think we're probably going to have to make a change <coughs> on, the, uh, uh, on, the, on the church history class. I've had more people come up, and uh, I think what we're going to probably have to do is 